As soon as the case numbers get low, we as humans just very quickly say it's over, it's gone, I'm going back, you know, things are back to normal. And they may be back to normal in some ways, but we still have to be vigilant and we still need to be aware that it's out there and it's likely to come back. I'm Emily Williams. This is Understand South Carolina from the Post and Courier. Today, Dr. Michael Sweat, Director of the Medical University of South Carolina's Center for Global Health, is back to answer more of our questions about the COVID-19 pandemic in South Carolina. The last time Dr. Sweat joined us in the podcast, the Omicron variant of the coronavirus was just emerging. What followed was a major wave of coronavirus cases when Omicron became the dominant variant in South Carolina and across the U.S. A lot has changed since then. Transmission of the virus is low right now in South Carolina. But while things have improved, the pandemic isn't over and there are still big questions, like whether there will be another surge in cases, and if there is, how we'll know when it's coming. So this week, Dr. Sweat offered some insight on the state of the pandemic right now in South Carolina, including the recent closing of all the state health agencies' mass COVID-19 testing sites and the state's stagnant vaccination rate. I'm uh, Michael Sweat. I'm a professor in the College of Medicine at uh, the Medical University of South Carolina, and I'm the the faculty director for the MUSC Center for Global Health. Let's start by talking about the state of transmission of COVID-19 in South Carolina right now. Where are things? Yeah, things are, are quite low right now. We are at one of the lowest levels of transmission that we've had since really the inception of the pandemic here in South Carolina and in the Charleston area. The growth rates, we're getting about four cases per day for every 100,000 people. So there is still transmission happening, but it's um, it's a low level. We were up above 200 something cases per 100,000 during the, the big Omicron surge that we just had. So things are low right now. Yeah. Is there another point in the pandemic that we could kind of compare it to? Yeah. So I'd say a comparable time was uh, was June of 2021, kind of right before 4th of July. We had a big peak in the winter before that, and it went down. Of course, soon after, it shot back up again with the Delta wave, went back down. We're back up again, way up again with the Omicron wave and now we're way way down so that's that's the pattern that we see and um, I actually think we're beginning to identify what I w- what's referred to as seasonality and we see that with the flu it's a seasonal event that tends to start in the late fall and kind of peaks into the winter months and we know that through history that it, it kind of has a very seasonal pattern but we're beginning to see that with COVID as well, that we, and at least here in the coastal area, you know, in, in South Carolina, tend to have a wave right after Christmas period, right around New Year's. And then we see another one that occurs in the summer. The first summer wave in 2020 was earlier in the summer than it was later, but still seems to occur around the summertime. And the the waves have been getting larger and larger over time as well. So we'll see what the future holds, but um, it looks to me like we're, we're seeing a seasonal pattern. 
The last time that we were speaking for this podcast, we were talking about the Omicron variant. It was very early on um, when that variant was emerging. What's the dominant strain of the coronavirus right now? Yeah, it's still Omicron, technically, according to the sort of nomenclature and the way things are identified, but it's a, it's a sub-variant of Omicron. So it has mutated even more. The first version of Omicron was referred to as BA1, and now this BA2 variant has become predominant, really here in the U.S., but also even more so all over the world. So we're seeing a sub-variant of the Omicron would someone who had that first version of Omicron have some immunity against this one if they, say, got sick during that wave that we had in December and January? Absolutely. That's one of the benefits of the fact that it is, you know, a child, so to speak, of the original Omicron variant is that it does, the science is showing that it really does impart very strong immunity to the subvariant, and that's actually what makes looking to the future a little hard to know because so many people got the original Omicron invariant infection that that really limits the ability of this subvariant to move around and infect those people who had it before. They could still get an infection. It doesn't perfectly protect you. That prior infection would also likely keep you from getting very seriously ill. And if I could just digress on that for a moment, you know, we think about immunity as sort of this one thing, but it's got components. Uh, There's two key parts. One is whether that immunity will protect you against getting infected. That's a very high level threshold. The other one is whether it will stop you from getting very sick. And we know from vaccines that when they first came out, they, they, they stopped both. You didn't get infected and you didn't get sick for the most part. Over time, that waned, particularly for the infection protection, but it continues even to this day to protect people quite well against serious illness. It's a bit complex when you when you sort of think about the different types of vaccines, the different variants, how long it's been. When you just add it all up and look at what we're facing going forward, there is worry because we're starting to see some increases in the BA2 and and in COVID cases, uh, particularly in the Northeast. And Europe just had a big outbreak. So what will happen? Well, it it could be we're going to get a fair number of people infected, but that it may not lead to a massive impact on sort of serious illness, ending up in the hospital and having people die from covid That's the hope, but we'll have to see with a little more time. From what we know right now, what do you think is the likelihood that we will see another surge here in South Carolina? Let me get my crystal ball out and take a look. No, it's uh, hard to know. I want to stress going forward, I I do feel there's a lot of uncertainty, so it's hard to predict with certainty, but I could give you a hunch. And my hunch would be we are going to see increases over the summer, partially because we just see them over the past two years. We've seen them very consistently occurring. And then you couple that with this new variant that's even more transmissible, the subvariant BA2, that's more transmissible, about 30% more transmissible. You add to that that, you know, we've seen Europe and, and the UK go through this 
and and historically that well predicts us having a surge the two questions would be kind of how tall will that peak be in infections and among those who get infected um, how many will have serious illnesses and will our hospitals get overrun as they did in this last wave i think we're likely to see an increase in infections i don't think it's going to be as high a peak not as many people and I don't think that those people who get it are, are going to be as likely to end up having serious cases. And, and just to break that down, the reason I think the peak will be lower is just uh, so many people just had it. But that breaks down the ability of that virus to move through the social networks. And then on top of that, you know, when you kind of add up people who've had any prior infection, it may not have been Omicron, that still gives you some protection against getting seriously ill. You can just start adding up the number of people who've either been vaccinated or who have had a case or two or three cases sometimes. We're starting to get to that point where immunity is at a threshold that means, you know, you won't see as many people who are kind of naive to the virus and unvaccinated. That would be my guess is that we're going to see a, an increase and hopefully it would mean that it would be mostly mild cases. Now, a couple of bigger, more more recent changes in how people are getting tested or how cases are being monitored in South Carolina have happened recently. The State Department of Health and Environmental Control closed the mass COVID-19 testing sites. Cases are reported on a weekly basis, right, rather than a daily basis. What do some of those changes mean for, you know, monitoring cases and looking out for where is it going? Is there a potential surge? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's the lifeblood of the work we do because we rely on those metrics to analyze and report out to the community. DHEC's decision to pull back on the mass testing sites, I personally think was justifiable on balance. For one reason, people are migrating much more to home-based testing, self-testing. The testing itself plays multiple roles, right? I mean, it's a valuable and critically important public health tool for for individuals because it allows them to know if they're infected and to isolate. But it also is a generate it generates metrics for us to know what's happening, which also is a public health tool because we can then titrate our mitigation efforts and, and alerts to people. On the level of uh, the value of it, importance of it for allowing people to know what they're infected and take the proper course of action, you know, it's, uh, it'd be nice if we had testing at every corner, but, you you know, it's not necessarily cost effective to, to have that uh, sort of mass testing strategy. And given that people have relatively ready access now, thank goodness, to self-testing, it, it reinforces that decision. I, I do think if we saw another major outbreak, it would be valuable to bring some of those testing sites back in, into play, especially if we got a variant that was you know, very deadly and evaded our immunity. And as far as going to weekly reporting, you know, I wish we had it every day because it would be nice to see the daily numbers. But when the numbers are at this level, uh, it's not going to make that much difference to get them weekly or daily. That, again, I think was justifiable. However, we need better tools. We need more creative strategies to, to get early warning signals. And there's several that are possible that haven't been pursued or have been pursued and haven't been pursued 
consistently. And one of them is wastewater testing. So you can test sewage water. People excrete, you know, the virus particles um, and they can be picked up in the sewage and tested. It's relatively easy and not that expensive, although it takes some resources. I, I do understand that DHEC is working to bring that back online and try to get those results out more quickly. You know, I know the numbers are low, but they can shoot up so quickly that you don't want to just stop doing those things because because case numbers are low. But there are other techniques that are used frequently for surveillance and um, and monitoring, and uh, one of them is a sentinel surveillance strategy. You know, I'd like I'd love to see more of that developed, and we've been working some on trying to get a program going, and and that would be. For example, uh, if in a hospital situation, you, you are at a doctor's office, you could do a swab on X number of people a week who are experiencing respiratory symptoms. That's a very efficient and you know valuable way to detect new cases, but also new variants. And thirdly, new, inf- new emerging infection pathogens. We really need to move in that direction. I think we probably will see more sort of federal and state support for those things. And it seems like those methods where it's not relying on someone going to a testing site and deciding to do that or or, or picking up an at-home test might be more important too as people are thinking about the fact that cases are low, right? And might be less likely to think, I should test myself for COVID. That's absolutely true. By the way, this is one thing that I find remarkable over and over is that as soon as the case numbers get low, we as humans just very quickly say it's over, it's gone, I'm going back, you know, things are back to normal. And they may be back to normal in some ways, but we still have to be vigilant and we still need to be aware that it's out there and it's likely to come back. And I do think when the numbers are low, people do sort of ignore the sniffles or not feeling so good for a couple of days or think they have a cold. Going forward, what would be extremely valuable would be to to really encourage people to self-test whenever they have any sniffle or, you know, don't feel so good right away and then link those people rapidly to some of these highly effective antiviral medications, one in particular called Paxlovid. It's a Pfizer product um, and it's incredibly effective. It reduces hospitalizations and death by 89%. It also lowers the amount of virus in the person's body very quickly so they don't transmit it on to other people. That sort of nimble system is really where we're going to go if we want to get this under control. Of course, one of the main tools that's been used during the pandemic in the last year has been vaccines. And I wanted to talk about South Carolina's vaccination rate because it has remained pretty stagnant. You know, in terms of people being fully vaccinated, it's around. 54% of the population. When we talk about boosters, it's much lower than that, too. Yeah, it's a real uh, issue. We break our numbers out by region here. And just as an example, in in Charleston, it's about 59% of the total population has received two doses of vaccine. It varies. So like in some parts of the uh, more northern parts, it's much lower, 46% in the Lancaster and Chester area. The number of new of people newly getting vaccinated, you know, their first dose and kind of coming on board and deciding it's okay to get one, uh, it's pretty much frozen in amber. <laughs> I mean, we're not seeing, we're seeing almost no uptake of that. So um, we may just have to live with that. That's what's happening. But there, there is 
another dimension of this that's very important, and that's that getting a booster shot. Okay, so I'm just talking about the third dose. We also have now a fourth dose. But the third dose in the Charleston area, among the, uh, there were 59% of people who've gotten two, but only 23% of people who have gotten a third dose, a booster shot. What that tells you is that a large proportion, almost 60% of people who got two doses did not go on to get a booster. And I would argue that those people, that 61% of people who who didn't go on and get the other one, but they went ahead and got the first two, is a prime target for our public health outreach because they're not ideologically necessarily committed to not getting vaccinated. They, they did it. They got two doses, but they didn't go on to get that third one. And I also think uh, in terms of educating the public about the value of the third, it is pretty profound what the third dose does. It brings your antibodies, which is one part of your immune system, back up above what it was with the original two doses. That's critical. It also will, for a period of time, stop you from getting infected. So if you time that right, by the way, it, particularly if a new wave is happening and you get it just before that, you're, you're smart. So that's, that's an area I think is, is a potential for us to educate the population a little more on and to go ahead and get that third dose. It really is a profound impact on reducing both getting infected for six months or so, but also keeping you out of the hospital over time. About a month ago, the CDC said that in most parts of the U.S., right, depending on transmission, but most parts that people were okay to not be masking indoors. And I think just overall, we're at an interesting place with that, right? There were people who never wanted to wear a mask in the first place. Uh, I think there were people who were wearing masks, but as soon as the CDC said, you're okay to not, they were very happy to do so. And then a lot of people who have other pre-existing health conditions or immunocompromised or just still are being more cautious, you know, about about COVID or wondering to mask or, or not to mask. Do I throw the masks away? Do I buy another box for when we have another surge down the line? And, uh, you know, as someone who's been so closely following this pandemic, what what's your advice right now? I, I think um, government mandates are a blunt instrument that should be used sparingly for true public health emergencies. And and one of the reasons for that is you're not going to get great compliance. Or, you know, people are not going to do it if it's always on, if that switch is always turned on. It's smart to judiciously implement them and then de-implement them. The logic has changed. The logic on many of these things has changed. For one thing, let's take masking. With an N95 mask, the wearer is highly protected. Earlier, it wasn't so clear, and N95 masks were not available. So cloth masks were the prime masks people used, and they were primarily protecting other people. It's multiplicative. So if, if we both wear them, you reduce the transmission in, in the room. But for the individual, if you're really exposed right on with a aerosolized mix of, uh, of uh, COVID virus, uh, you, it protected you some, but not dramatically. But within 95s, it really protects you. If you really want to protect yourself, you can do it. I mean, you can wear that mask and um, protect yourself. You know, if, you vac- if you're vaccinated and 
and you wear that mask, your, your risk is really low. So, I, I mean, I'll tell you, I wear one when I go in the grocery store just because it's pretty easy. It doesn't bother me that much. It takes, you know, 20 minutes and I'm out of there. And if other people don't want to wear it, it's not going to hurt me that much. I mean, the chance of me picking it up when I'm wearing a good N95 mask is, is minimal. So I just I want to put that on the table because there's been a lot of judging and anger on both sides. And I, I just encourage people to, um, you know, think through those things that, you know, you still can protect yourself. There was a great study done in, um, it was published in the Lancet. It was done by the University of Washington team who were really top-notch modelers and have great data. And they analyzed uh, sort of outcomes across all these countries in the world because of this very rich data set in terms of COVID, you know, what like death rates and infection rates and such. And they threw the kitchen sink in looking at variables that predicted what was likely to lead to better outcomes. And the one variable that trumped every other variable was trust in one another and solidarity and trust in the public health system and government. And when that was missing, controlling for everything possible, that's when you had problems. So we got to work on on trust, but it's a two-way street. I mean, I think we have to all come together and try to mediate what's going to be the right thing to do. All right, that's all for today. For more recent COVID-19-related coverage from The Post and Courier, check out the links in today's show notes. If you have comments or questions for this podcast, email us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or find us on Twitter at understandsc. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Let us know what you think of the show. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with a different news story from our state.